From Central Source and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Source, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. My name is Ryan Gore, and welcome to the fourth edition, I think, of the video game episode. Fourth edition it is... That is the fourth edition, wow. so we are in the Mario 64, Mario Sunshine, Mario, it's Mario Galaxy 2, it's the Mario Galaxy 2 episode, guys. Uh, <laughs> so, joining me as usual for these video game epi- episodes, we have Brandon Hill, how you doing? What's up, guys? Uh, Brandon Hill, editorial teams at Central Sauce and OK Player. Um, you can check me out on Twitter at Hoopla Hill. Yeah, and we have Tyler Jones, what's up, Tyler? What's up, guys? Uh, I am a playlister and regular poet from for different uh, publications, uh, and happy to be here, boys. For sure, and yeah, as I said, I'm Ryan Gore, um, animation writer all over the place, honestly. Uh, <laughs> just follow me on Twitter, at Ryan Gore, and just read the stuff that I've written, because I've done too much stuff to list it all right now. Um, <laughs> Especially cool. recently, too. Very, very recently. Uh, partially is that because of Brandon. Oh, I will shout out that I was in Rolling Stone again just because that's sick. Um, <laughs> but yeah. All right. So let's go on with the show. But before we do that, let's go around and talk about what we've been playing recently since it is the video game episode. And Brandon, there's only one place to start. It's the game of the life. It's the game of the month. It's the game of century. It's the game of everything. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, Tears of the Kingdom obviously has been getting a lot of playtime out of me, um, and I think pretty much everyone else based on on Twitter. I was kind of late to the party because I was like finishing up my semester around the time when the game was coming out, um, and was just really busy with stuff. So I kind of got into it late, but I finally feel like I'm catching up. Um, I'm really like getting the pace of the game. And Ryan, we were kind of talking about this a little bit over Twitter the other day, but I think one of the, in my opinion, one of the ways that this game has improved on Breath of the Wild the most um, is interesting because it's actually in the ways that the game has put limitations on a game that was lauded for being limitless, right? Um, and in a way that improved the game. And I think you see that in where the first game, you know, they give you this really open-ended um, sort of like chemistry format, right? Like they teach you the rules of the game and then it's up to you to kind of figure out all the different ways to put the rules together to achieve different results, Um, But I think a lot of times in Breath of the Wild, once you found that there were, you know, one or two particular methods that kind of worked in a blanket way, you know, um, across, you know, any puzzle or any challenge, um, you were able to kind of just apply those and it kind of like minimalized a lot of the other more interesting experimentations that you could come up with. But in Tears of the Kingdom, um, with the introduction of Sky Islands and the Depths, uh, they've introduced, you know, two environments that are both defined by... Um, being controlled environments and the way that the controlled environments, you know, can put new limits on the players that make you change the way that you're playing and change the way that you're solving problems. Like when you're in the sky islands, you're, you know, most common like objective for like what I'm going to be putting together to, to traverse the terrain is going to be something like I'm aiming for distance, right? I'm trying to get as far as I can get because I see the point over there. But in the depths where you are limited by your visibility, um, the restriction is much more on, you know, slow moving, um, 
progress like in your immediate area and kind of navigating around the train that you can't see. One of my favorite points in the game was recently when I put together my first like all-terrain vehicle in the depths and mm-hmm. I put some lights mm-hmm. on it. And mm-hmm. you're still limited by like how how much like battery power you have. So you kind of just like chug along and then you got to stop and wait in the darkness for your battery to recharge. And then you chug along again. You know, it genuinely felt like you were kind of diving into the depths of of Hyrule and kind of really in this like tense environment. Um, but yeah, fantastic game. That's my soft pitch for the the essay. I would love to write on Tears of the Kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> Hit me up if you uh, if you have the budget. I'd love to put those words down. Hell yeah. Um, yeah, I think that'd be a great article. And yeah, I think uh, I can't even describe how incredible the game is because it's so like when you make a game this big and a game this intricate of so many mechanics, sometimes you forget to make it fun. And Tears mm-hmm. of the Kingdom never stops being fun, no matter what the challenge is. Um, the two pieces of art that I was most excited for coming into 2023, or both released in the past month. And that was Tears of the Kingdom and Across the Spider-Verse. And there's parallels there. There's parallels there. One was released 2017, one 2018. And when they dropped, they kind of set a new benchmark for their respective industries. You know, Zelda for the open world game and Spider-Verse for mainstream animation. Um, so these follow-ups are very anticipated, but also very worrying for me because how do you follow up the industry to find out? Would it feel the same? Would it feel like the breath of fresh air it felt like uh, five, six years ago? And they both came back and they both, in my opinion, somehow innovated again and mm-hmm. set, set the, a new benchmark above the one they just set themselves, while the rest of the industry in both cases is still catching up to it. Like, people were are still trying to figure out the level of interactivity you get in something like Breath of the Wild, where you can pick up anything, you can climb anything. Now Tears of the Kingdom's come along, it's like, no, now you can get anything and stick it to any other thing, and the physics will work exactly how you expect the physics to work. Or in the case of Spider-Verse, we're like, oh, all these movies are coming out where it's CG, but uh, you've added a little bit of a painting in there, a little bit of a hand-drawn thing. Then across the Spider-Verse comes along, we have 25 different art styles in our movie, go for it. Like, it, it, it... they are operating on such a different level and it's like been a lot to process in the last month. Um, but it's been a very, very special time. Um, and I'll, I'll, again, oh, that's an essay I'd love to write about the parallels between those two things. So again, if you have the budget, hit me up. Tyler has not played Tears of the Kingdom, so I'm very <laughs> curious. So, And you haven't seen Across the Spider-Verse. So Tyler, what is your life right now? Uh, my life right now is playing lots of make so I think I might have discussed before I'm a big Mega Man fan. Mm. Okay. Specifically the I grew up playing the Mega Man Battle Network series and Nintendo I've literally been waiting on this game for like a year. Like Mega Man fans probably all over the world have been like waiting for a long time. But they've released recently released the uh, Mega Man Battle Network Legacy Collection. Where it has games one through six <clears throat> and it has been a delight to play um because i think by the time i started getting to mega man it would they were on mega man battle network three so it's been great to co- go back and play one and two which i'm on two right now um as i go into like three four five and six and seeing how those mechanics have changed 
for me as an adult, um, playing it on the Switch, which is, of course, just a singular screen, and really just reliving memories with that. It's more, it's definitely a nostalgia release, but a, a release that really is like, oh, it's such a, a deal of getting like six games along with artwork, character designs, um, and new battleships for like, depending where you go, between 50 and 60 bucks. So it's been, it's been awesome. Um, and also a game that I probably guys are expecting me to say, um, but because of the movie I watched recently, I've been playing a lot of Tetris. Uh, <laughs> You're gonna have to show up to Ryan's Ryan's streams. Ryan streams Tetris, and we have a we have a good time over there. <laughs> it's I I, I it's because I I watched recently the kind of like the true story heavy air quotations on that um, Apple Apple Plus film mm-hmm. Tetris that has Taron Edgerton in it, and I was like, yo, this is dope. I remember playing Tetris as a kid. <laughs> now all these little blocks live in my mind, just like the main character. And so, so now I've been playing a lot of Tetris. Um, and that's been like basically my, my roundup. I will probably get to Tears of the Kingdom at some point. Or I will probably just ask you guys to put you put you on a stream so I can watch you play it. <laughs> those are one of those games I would actually, I actually enjoy other people playing more than myself. Because I just love the pure enjoyment that they get from it, and just like seeing where they go with it, it's been it's it's really dope. I wish there was an yeah. easier way to stream from the Switch to Twitch. Right. Yeah, you need to buy like a capture card and stuff. It's it's tough. Yeah. Tyler, um, do you remember the old Mega Man game? I can't. I don't know if it was a mainstream one or not, but it was on like the Capcom like actual like arcade box. Was that like a mainstream mm-hmm. Mega Man game? I mean, depending on how old it was, like you have like so if you have the of course you have the main like and you have the two thousand two thousand five two thousand six. But it's interesting because it's the only Mega Man game I've ever played, and it also is like the only true like arcade experience I've ever had. You know where you're playing a game with in a, like a line of friends and you got to pump your quarters yeah. into the machine to keep going. It's and if that game is on the, the it's probably the, the older version of like platformer. I want to say I feel like yeah. I know what we're talking about, but like no, uh, it was like only bosses. It was no platforming. Only, it was like only, only bosses. bosses. Yeah, huh. mm. that's interesting. Never and you got a new weapon each time you beat a boss, and you tried to go, and you had to clear all the different levels, and then you got the big. Um, it's in the the Super Smash Bros. game. the The big yellow guy with the eyeball on the uh, Mega Man stage. It's whatever game. It wasn't an RPG, was it? It wasn't turn based on the Battle Network. It was more like a fighting yeah. game or anything else. Like, yeah, it was like a fighting game, like an arcade game. You could play with two people uh, at a time. I don't think I played that one, no. Oh man, it was sick. Cool. And I never I never beat it. I never had enough quarters. I need to like go back yeah. and and wrap up, you know, that part of my childhood needs to come full circle. So <laughs> not Mr. Wiley. It wasn't Mr. Wiley. Mr. Wiley was slightly different, but like, ah damn. Yeah, I'm going. I'm going to go into my um, my Mega Man like um, research box for that one. But yeah. Like, yeah, thank you for that. But I feel like, I feel like the Battle Network games themselves are deep cuts. Like I didn't know there were six of them. I remember when that popped up oh, in the yeah. direct. Um, I didn't know there were like RPG Mega Man games on the DS. So, oh yeah, because yeah. like, well, no, it wasn't on the DS. So that was all the advanced. That Battle Network was all the advanced era, and then after oh. that, before the DS was the Star Force era, which was which was essentially like almost like a sequel series to Battle Network because uh, it's like it's Mega Man Star Force 
Mm -hmm. Um, and it's like an alternate timeline type deal. Hey, Mega Man lore is like deep and dope. I'm (laughs) always, always looking for a new lore binge to, to get down. So yeah, I think, I think channel Federator, if they, if they still go by that name, um, has a timeline of Mega Man games. They have a timeline of Mega Man games, Tekken games, Street Fighter, Metal Gear Solid, actually. It's really, it's, I matter of fact, I actually, um, cause we have some video essays today, but I, 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 like for everyone who has a, well, everyone who uses YouTube, which is almost everyone, good channel Federator. Um, they have a timeline, a complete timeline of Mega Man, uh, like what's the name? They have, a, uh, what's the name? Tekken, Street Fighter, Metal Gear Solid, and even Re- Resident Evil, all that stuff. Check, check them out. They're dope. For sure, for sure. I did not expect to get a big detour on Mega Man, but that's awesome. (laughs) All right. So, today on the show, obviously, we're diving into video game soundtracks of all forms. We have a piece on the Nintendo-fication of jazz, uh, a piece talking about the value of rhythm games. But we'll start with a piece that Brandon brought. So, Brandon, do you want to introduce this one? Sure. So, my piece is... Hotline Miami and the Rise of Techno in Ultraviolent Video Games uh, by Nina Corcoran for Pitchfork. Um, so Hotline Miami was this like smash indie hit where you play as a hitman in a minimalist neon retro landscape. Uh, you slaughter buildings full of guards, rent a DVD on your way home and do it all again the next day. Uh, this whole thing is soundtracked by this very like aggravated techno that keeps the pace of the game constantly moving, even in between levels. Uh, when your score is adding up and you're unlocking new items and in between deaths as the game um, is sort of like famously difficult. Um, I love this one particular sentence that the writer uses to describe the game. Uh, she writes, they placed a strong emphasis on contrast, modern techno and retro graphics, cute animal masks and aggressive kill methods, vibrant neon color- colors and the dark burgundy of blood. So this Pitchfork article in particular, um, it interviews one of the developers, a creator of the soundtrack, and some music psychologists to talk about why those contrasts are so effective and how this game inspired a surge of techno in ultraviolent video games um, that really kind of originates with, it also touches on in Mortal Kombat in 1992, which is the first game that ever um, sort of brought the discussion of like, oh, are, are, are video games making kids violent, right? So techno, you know, it was a big driving factor of the the original game that kind of like started that argument. Um, one particular quote here that speaks to like the effectiveness of techno in Hotline Miami is on difficult levels. The sheer repetition of techno helps detach you from the unsettling feeling of bashing someone's skull with a baseball bat or shooting a guard dog with a machine gun before it attacks you. The Hotline Miami soundtrack doesn't just sound cool. It's a stylish aesthetic turned mindset that intentionally helps players numb the problems around them. Um, And this calls back to something we talked about too when we covered Celeste in the video game music episode of the podcast and how rhythm is such an important thing to have in a difficult game. Um, That's rhythm in the music, but also rhythm in the gameplay. Like when you are in in something that's incredibly difficult and you feel like you're kind of banging your head against a wall, um, being able to quickly get the player back into the game and without skipping, you know, the pace and the rhythm of, of the soundtrack kind of gets your body into a, a way of just like practicing the rhythm over and over again. And it takes frustration out of something that's extremely frustrating and makes it like really possible to keep kind of banging your head against that wall and have fun at the same time. Right. Cause there are incredibly frustrating games like dark souls 
that are like frustrating, frustrating, right? There's not like a, a techno soundtrack to that game that, that, that is keeping the vibe going. Um, in the case of Hotline Miami, the soundtrack also feels like an extension of that frustration. Um, in an interview with the creator, Steven Giralde, um, he talks about the creator of one part of the soundtrack. Uh, talks about how the music was born from the extreme angst of a 16-year-old teenager going through some very frustrating moments in their real life. And that frustration is obviously translated into sort of like the aggravation of the soundtrack, um, as well as the aggravation of the gameplay. And it's funny how those things combine and the resulting feeling is like stress relief in a way, right? It's like you're taking two negatives and making a positive out of it, um, which speaks to the successful like development of a game alongside a soundtrack. Um, further down on the piece, a psychologist explains how techno music in particular isn't cognitively taxing, as in you don't have to think about it to enjoy it. Um, and listening to the soundtrack and watching some of the gameplay too, you kind of get that sense of how your body just like slips into that rhythm without you having to like put a lot of intention behind it, which just works really well in, in that gameplay loop that we were talking about. Uh, from a writing standpoint, my favorite aspects of this piece uh, is just how comprehensive the sourcing is, how tight the organization is. Um, it gets in and out in exactly as much time as it needs to make the point. And you've got an expert source around every corner, um, providing the necessary background from a factual standpoint, as well as from an entertaining standpoint. Um, so what did you guys think about the piece, you know, as far as the writing goes? Um, and what does this sort of add to the conversation we've already had with with Celeste and when it comes to how um, music can, you know, reduce frustration and incredibly frustrating um, gameplay loops. Can I go first on this one? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, to uh, actually to call back to that um, to that psychologist uh, we were talking about earlier, I would actually want to give the quote that they had. Um, it was uh, from Dr. Susan Rogers, who was a Berkeley professor. They said, rather than you get cognitively engaged, techno was actually trying to, as they were saying, as they were saying earlier, um, as one neuroscientist said, free you from the dominance of reality and let your mind drift off into other places without worrying that you're going to miss something. Um, and I thought it was really fascinating. Um, because when I think of techno music, as I'm not an aficionado or anything of that nature, I always think of techno in 80s and partying and almost environments like that. And but it but then made me recall whenever I would see techno used in like let's say a scene or in this case, video games is trying to, it's where people are freeing themselves. It's like they're loose, they're having fun and they're not, and they're trying to de-stress. So for that, for, for them using it in that regard, right? And that in that way to use it as a game where it's like you're, const you're constantly being killed or killing, it is kind of making it, I do, I do see the vision. I see the vision of in thought process, like making it less, I don't know, bloody and gory is <laughs> make, making it a much less bloody and gory genre by, in, by, by putting it in that setting. It's like, okay, dance, the kill at the yeah. same time, you know, right? Yeah, it um, kind of tells you it's not so serious. Exactly. It's like now, if let's say like this was like, if this, if this was music, if this was a game that, and that had the background of like Trent Reznor or something like that, like very Gone Girl, then yeah, you're probably going to even like get like nightmares or something like that from it, like get, <laughs> and give haunting thought of the actions you're going to say. I am murdering people. I am bashing their heads in while I'm wearing a chicken mask. Like it's, it's, it, it becomes a lot darker take, right? Um, 
But um, but real quick too, as your, to your original question, um, when it comes to the actual writing of the article, I did, I did think it was very concise, organized. When I first saw his pitchfork, and I was like, all right, cool. I was like, I'm prepared for like a very long read where with jargon that sometimes yeah. I don't, with jargon that I don't always understand. But um, what I want to give the shout out to Nina, our writer here. For, um, she did a great job where I not only was I to understand it, it was very it was very thorough, and I was able to follow the article and her structuring of it was it, it the structuring of it what gave me a understanding that I left that I didn't have before going into the article. It was something that can maybe seem intimidating because I let's say like if you're talking about the average reader and they're going to Pitchfork, which is once again about music, they're like, oh, video game music. What is this game? I never. What is this game I never heard of? I expect um, it's going to be something. It's going to be hard for me to get into. Well, in fact, she makes it very easy to understand, process, and then even gain it in curiosity for. Because I wasn't, I wasn't familiar with um, Hotline Miami. I actually ended up watching a walkthrough for it after I got in with the article, and I was like, "Oh no!" And for, first of all, I agreed about the music and how it's making me feel as I see this person play the game. And two, now I want to play it. It gave me interest that I actually followed up on. Yeah, yeah. I just kind of follow up on what you talk about. Like disappearing on Pitchfork is quite interesting. Um, whenever you bring a piece, I try to think about, okay, if I had the idea for this. How would I go about pitching it? And like pitching something like this is so difficult. I mean, Brandon mm-hmm. and I talked a lot about like trying to get into video game journalism, but there isn't a lot of space for stuff when it comes to written journalism that isn't like reviews or guides, which are usually done in house. So being a freelancer in a space is quite difficult. If you have a unique angle or something that's a bit too ambitious, it can just like fall flat a bit. Um, and even on these episodes, when we look for articles or pieces about video game music, a lot of the time we are bringing videos because the YouTube space and like the independent content creation space is a lot more where that kind of stuff is happening. So, um, yeah, like to, to go to like one of the conventional music journalism outlets that we go to, to source articles for this podcast and finding video game pieces is quite a novelty um and quite rare so i appreciate that just to begin with and shout out to nita for landing this because going to a music publication and writing about uh video game music an indie an indie game that isn't like guaranteed to bring in mass viewers and is very much like a cult thing hugely difficult thing to to pitch to begin with <clears throat> and then we go into just like um writing it and the actual piece and like like tyler said it's very thorough i thought the thing that jumped out to me the most is just how well researched it was it's a really really well researched piece um not just talking about the game itself and talking to the people who made it and um even the psychologist a part of it was very well researched but the fact that nina kind of traces the influence of the game to other indie games which is it feels so impossible because Indie as indie is not a genre, it's like just a different part. It's just a different universe of gaming and it's not so tight knit that influence from one indie game to another indie game is easily traceable. You really have to be tapped in, you have to really do your research to be able to trace that kind of influence. Because 
you can't encompass indie gaming. Um, so yeah, I thought it was really, really impressive how she managed to talk about other titles as well. He didn't like a, a similar thing because, you know, any, an indie game can blow up every other week and it's difficult to keep track of everything. So I thought mm. that aspect was really, really well done. Um, yeah. Oh, I was going to say, I also, that, oh, I'm, oh, I'm sorry, Brian. I'm no, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to oh, jump to a new point. So go ahead. Oh, oh, you're good. I was like to that point of like research, right? I do think what's, I think the reason why she did that is because it's for fans of games like Hotline Miami and other indie developers, that community is so well knit and mm-hmm. they, they, it's, they know other indie games. So I think she had the mindset of like, okay, cool. If I'm going to write about this, I need to have my research together because like for those tight niche communities, they know their subject, their subject matter, their games very well. They know the. They probably know the games that she uh, that she's discussing. So I think it was mm. important. I think she probably felt it was important to have the research to back it up. She's like, because if I'm going to present this game, especially in a modern context, for the fans that are that are new indie game fans and for ones of mm. the past, it's going to be informing for the new ones and for the ones that already know of it. They know that I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You're just making it's covering your base of both audiences. So I think it was smart of them, excuse me, to make sure they have that. Yeah, and I really appreciate it too. There's like this this micro story within the story here as well about um, one of the creators of the soundtrack, Stephen Giard, um, Gillard or Giard. Not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. My apologies, but um, there's there's really cool like when you look at like how video games are soundtrack, and of course as we've talked in the past about like actual 8-bit technology and what was actually being used to create a soundtrack and when games sort of started first adopting like oh we can actually just now like put digital music in our game right because we're no longer hampered by the physical limits of the soundtrack so it's still interesting to see how you know is a game choosing to create its own soundtrack and original music and and carefully like tailor the music to the gameplay um, but in this case, you have a game where the music is so core to the gameplay and the music, you know, was found and pulled from these indie um, game developers looking at, you know, thousands of songs by indie artists and finding, you know, just the perfect songs that also matched this very specific vision that they had for the game and being able to find that out there. Um, and it's sort of a testament to like how, much indie content is being made and how many different ways there are to sort of combine these elements in new ways. Um, and, and within this micro story, you have this artist who goes by moon, um, an acronym M O O N, um, who was, you know, 16 when, when they stumbled upon like this debut self-titled techno project. Um, and there's a note in here that they paid $400 for each track and how that was like a completely kind of life changing experience for this, you know, 16 year old high school kid who was producing this aggravated angsty techno as a result of, of frustrations going on in his current life and how that, you know, then plays into um, this game that becomes an indie darling and inspires this Hmm. sort of format of techno. And the way that the piece is wrapped up here refers to the game as sort of having one foot in the past and another foot in the future. And that speaks to like, how the developers were creating this game with all these contrasts in mind, right? Like 
retro, you know, Miami vibes, but then futuristic kind of techno, right? Like the ultra violence with the um, go home and buy a DVD, like, and that's the guy's, you know, thing that he lives with. Um, and so it really finding that music and using that music to kind of drive that story home um, tends to be like what really stands out about this game. And I'm going to end, you know, on the quote that they actually started the piece with um, that I found was really funny um, was the top comment on a YouTube video of the soundtrack that says, it's really cool that this soundtrack came with a free game. Right. And, it, and, it's, and actually this is going to lead really well into um, I have this note on one of your guys's pieces, but sort of the question being, do game soundtracks last longer than games do in the culture and within the culture? Um, and we're going to get into that kind of, I think, on, on one of your two pieces as well. But that's an interesting question, you know, that's raised here and will come up again. So, yeah, um, that that's a really fascinating point. And just the point you're making before, I think this piece is a really good job of like linking the rise up uh, like bedroom music with indie gaming and kind of like the whole ethos of the entire thing is like these two guys just wanted to get together and make this game by themselves. So the music they get is from some kid who just made some stuff probably in his bedroom as a 16 year old. And like that kind of almost rustic DIY kind of thing um, up against some of the stuff we've done before where it's like Koji Kondo having access to all of Nintendo's budget to do whatever he wants for the Mario soundtrack. It's, yeah, it's quite an interesting um, uh, balance there. But we got to move on. So let's wrap that one up. That was Hotline Miami and the Rise of Techno and Ultraviolet Video Games by Nina Cochran for Pitchfork. Next, we'll go into what Tyler brought. And Tyler, your piece is a little different in terms of what we consider like a video game music. So I'm really excited to talk about this one. So it's, this, this uh, video essay is done by Film Otter, and, uh, and it's called Our Rhythm Games Genius. So I, I know I was kind of like toting a line with this one because um, it's not really about the music itself. It's kind of about, it's really about the game and the type of games that we get, right? Um, but it all comes back to rhythm and music, right? The... So Film Otter, their basic premise is, if you had to like really sum up this article, is like, fuck realism, let their, let creatives be creative, right? And, and not let yourself be bound with the hindrances of trying to be, um, of trying to be real in games. So the, they're trying to get the point across is that in mo- today's modern era, and because of capitalism, a lot of games are trying to have this certain aesthetic of and, or have this selling point of being it's real with the unreal engine of like the ps5 we can make games look like movies make games look like real people and the film otter's like argument is like that kind of hinders the game it kind of hinders your experience with the game of being immersed with it to a certain degree because you're forgetting that you are playing a game you're now stuck in this format of how close is this to real life? How immersed can I be if I'm trying to forget something? How, I, how can I forget a game, right? 
and how rhythm rhythm games music like in old games like Guitar Hero, right, or like the really one that really created that boom of like, and at least in the mid two thousands, is how that kind of like frees your game from being a Call of Duty, no shots fired, to a <laughs> to a Rhythm Nation or a Dance Dance Revolution, and having your design, your world be unique from that, um and. It, it kind of like it more so with me and the guy and the questions I'm going to ask for you guys. It's it made me question: Do I want my game? Like, how much do I care if my game is realistic? Um, I know we're all Nintendo heads here, and I think we can all kind of agree that Nintendo games aren't inherently trying to be realistic. Like, at least like Nintendo originals and exclusives aren't trying to be realistic. They're trying to be fun and creative and world building. And yeah, they, shout out Pikmin or, Three. Pikmin Three is the yeah. game that like brought me back to like, oh, that's right, these things are supposed to be fun. Like, yeah, I'm just playing. I'm just playing a little game. That's what. That's all this has to be. Like, and stuff like Celeste and everything like that. Like, it's like, do you want to really want to be? Like, how much do you want to watch a movie, and how much do you want to play a game? Mm-hmm. That's that's really the argument. Almost, I think the underlying argument they're trying to like get to. Because when it comes to some movies, we're trying to be immersed. We're trying to be get lost. The fact that we're even watching a movie, we're trying to experience a movie, as some people say. Scorsese. Um, <laughs> but instead, we're trying to be more uh, Kojima or something like that. Like, how much can you actually like? How fun can you actually play a game? So, what would you rather be? Scorsese or, or, or you know, right? Um, and it and it gives way to the train of thought of like, okay, I don't want my game to look like a movie. I want my game to look like a game. I want to play. Um, it gave the great example of like, what was it? Forza Motorsport, which has mm-hmm. gorgeous design, and when you drive past it, when you drive past with your car, the in the grass. Is affected by the air as created by its engines. But it doesn't matter. Like, what are you paying attention to that for? Like, what are you actually going? What, what does that actually add to your game experience? Like, seem like oh, you're going at ninety miles an hour. Like, yeah, it's like, it's, it's like oh, it. like you raise up your your hands and Mario Italian. Oh, aesthetic. <laughs> like, it's like, 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 what are we actually doing here? Well, instead, if you're playing like Beat Saber. You get these really cool like light uh, light visuals and almost strobe effects as you're going and that's a VR game that's supposed to be immersive but you're still but it doesn't but it's not losing the fact that you're still playing a game at the end of the day. So I guess the bigger question I want to get to you guys with um, and also tell me what you thought about the video essay as well. How much do you need your game to be realistic? None, none. This has yeah, been my entire thing for a long time now this video has kind of distilled it all very perfectly into a really good package here and kind of just put the battery in my back like yes what i'm talking about man like games are games like why are these companies obsessed with trying to make us forget that we're playing a game while we're playing while we're playing a game i've bought a 500 quid console to play games i don't want to be you know like i know what i'm doing i've picked up the controller because i like picking up controllers um it's such a weird thing where like 
they've they it's like a game is a, a dirty word you know they want as little prompts on the screen as possible he's even got to the point where it doesn't say press the a button it goes like it's like it gives you the the symbol of the um the the pad on your controller and it gives you like a highlighted key instead of saying press a like it's like games are immersive anyway you can have prompts on the screen and still be immersed in a game it's because of the design of how you're like you're, you're like, ah, <laughs> a good game isn't about being lost, like, into thinking that you're not playing a game. It's about being able to get lost in the movement of your thumbs, essentially. You should be aware of what you're doing. It's so dumb to me. Um, but, but that kind of philosophy always car- also carries on to what I talk about in animation a lot where I'm always trying to champion stuff that's just really weird and isn't just CG, you know, realism, where in animation, realism is so much more achievable than in video games, which is why I think in video games, it's a very futile aesthetic because you have to add hitbox onto these things and all kinds of stuff that makes things just not... Like, trying to get a character to eat something in a video game will break all kind of immersion, all kind of realism, it's just not possible right now. So what's the point of even going for that? In movies, that's possible. In animation, that's possible. But I still think it's a futile attempt because the tools that you have at your disposal are designed to create things that aren't possible in real life. So why are you trying to make real life? We all have windows, man. We can see it. We know what leaves look like. I don't want to look at my screen and go, oh, man, look at that leaf. Fair enough. And I was probably worked really hard on that leaf and it's great (laughs) and that's fantastic and hope they got paid well for it and it's groundbreaking in a way um thanks for deep fake technology i guess but it's also just like (laughs) so futile because the best gaming experiences of my life aren't looking at really detailed leaves they're looking at little pikmin guys being plucked out the ground and going yippee when they get <laughs> out. like that doesn't happen out my window love that's that why shit. I pick up the game for, it's so satisfying you go around it just <laughs> it's so <laughs> sick <laughs> that's what i want like i want unrealistic sound effects and stuff uh yeah i could talk about this all day and rant about it all day it's better off watching the video because it's actually a bit more coherent than this um <laughs> But the, the fact that, that that the rhythm game is being used as kind of like the um, as kind of like the poster of non-realism is such a good idea and so mm. genius. Um, and it's because, in gone. Yeah, it's in it's in like the mechanics of how a rhythm game functions. And for me, that mm. was kind of like the coolest aspect of this video. Was like I read the title and I was like, oh, okay, right, we're gonna talk about Guitar Hero. Um, but right off the bat, this goes so far past Guitar Hero. And I didn't realize the s- pure scope of variety that exists within rhythm games. And oh, they yeah. really talk, they drive home the point about how the mechanics of a rhythm game naturally lends to um, that massive, massive variety. Because the whole point of a rhythm game, right, is that you are pressing a button in time to a prompt on the screen. And so when you have that very, very simple foundation, you know, you go away from realism because you are not denying the fact that the point is to press a button in time to a prompt on the screen. 
You don't have to deny that. You don't have to ignore it, hide it, cover it up. Like that's the basis of the game. And so from there, you can take it to so many different places. Um, and it uses what the one specific example, it wasn't a game I'm familiar with, so I don't know the the name right off the bat, um, but it talks about how you don't need a re- you don't need to give the pl- the player a reason for why my character is fighting a boss using a rhythm mechanic. Like you don't have to oh, justify yeah. it in the world because mm-hmm. that is what the game is. That's the function of the game, and it's there to have fun, right? Like that doesn't ever have to be covered up with a deeper layer or a or a more in-depth piece of storytelling it's just like you're having fun that's the function of the game now press the buttons bounce around the little lights um explore figure it out and 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 see and see what you find and also just like if you mess up you mess up it's like and that's and that's part of and that's almost like part of the music making process too right you experiment and i think that was like really cool i'm sorry i didn't mean to cut you off brother like it's it's i just had that thought as well no, I mean, that was that was basically like the the wrap up of, of like my main point of what I got from this video was really just the sheer amount of variety, which goes home to, you know, that the beginning of the video, they started off with showing a sequence of like first person shooter games and being basically like, what game is this? What game is this? What game is this? Like they all look exactly the same. And then throughout the entire rest of the video, just the sheer variety and what you are presented in and what rhythm games look like visually um, is just like off the charts. There's so like so many cool games in there that even just like without understanding their mechanics, they just look like so much fun visually and satisfying as well. A lot of them have that kind of um, kind of lo-fi relaxation aesthetic to them, mm-hmm. right? Lo-fi, Charlie's favorite word, bro. I, lo- I love it, bro. <laughs> It's it's <laughs> but no in all seriousness I do think and they made another point in the video that I never really thought about um, in terms of rhythm games is like once so whenever when they're talking about regular games right their soundtracks scores whatever are and similar to movies the game <laughs> the game is done first the visuals are done first so mm-hmm. then the music is like um, is once again scoring that right well instead with rhythm games it's like the music comes first. And they are now going to create this wacky world, whatever it may be, whatever you're seeing on screen from the music that they're create from that's that's that was created, or from like you from you button mashing what how that cha- how that can change a visual. They've, they've now they create sequences to where like a certain button button that you're pressing on a game because you're aware that you're playing a game changes the whole entire dynamic. It made me think of this might be a stretch, but like come with me. It made me think of how uh, how music comes first, even when it comes to like hip hop. It's like, if in terms of a regular so- sound strong structure, you're not you're not hearing most times. Oh, the rapper goes in first and does his rhymes, and then they create a beat. No, the beat comes first, and then the, and then the rapper, singer, whatever, is now trying to figure out what lyric goes here. How does this work? How does this create a full experience? Right, because they are now changing their flow, their cadence, whatever it may be, to fit the beat. And it's the same thing can be said for rhythm games. The rhythm games, the music is the music is happening, or the music is coming from like the buttons you're pressing. And then, what does that change to the visual? What does that change to the design? What does that change here and that? Because that comes first instead of like this immersive visual experience that's now trying to be created instead. So I think it lends itself to be once again you're 
you're getting something that's not constricted by having to be this, aka first person shooter, um, first person shooter games. Instead, it can be like a frog hopping on a guitar string, and then whenever you press A, it creates a sonic dissonance on the whole entire screen. It's it it you get to do something more with it. And I think that was an interesting argument to have because once again, I think still there are games that aren't rhythm games that can still be incredible and creative and everything of that nature. But it does make you think if mu if the music is coming first or the sound, the sonic landscape is being created first, what visual, what do they create from that instead? It is genius, as they were saying. What? And it also addresses how the 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 rhythm game right now is pretty limited to indie games, um, but yet the influence of the rhythm game has spread into you know in mainstream AAA titles and everything. And, and even I made the joke at the beginning before we were recording that every video essay seems to like have to mention Dark Souls, right? And this one even you know <laughs> it calls to the parry mechanic of Dark Souls being a function of rhythm. Um, and Ryan, actually, I wanted to ask you if you've got like a, a quick bit on that game you were recommending to me a little bit ago. That's it's the, I'm forgetting the title of the name, but you know what you want to talk about the one that's yeah. set to the soundtrack. And if, if you could talk about kind of how that plays into the concept of, you know, rhythm games being like, oh, press the button and prompt to the screen, but then yet mm. that influencing mainstream games. And then this game seemed to be sort of like a mesh of like, Let's not try again. Let's not try to hide that influence, and let's just like drive home that this is what we're doing and what we're going for. Yeah, and it def yeah yeah. So the game's called Hi-Fi Rush. Um, so the opposite of Lo-Fi. So it might be Chai's favorite game. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, if it wasn't for Tears of the Kingdom, it's probably my favorite game of the year I've played so far. It's another game that forces you to kind of abandon reality. So it's a game where Chai, um, Chai have you heard of it? Tyler, sorry. he's nodding. Oh, uh, I, 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 I have not heard of it. I already said Charles. Okay. No, I, I personally have not heard of it. No. Okay, so it's a Bethesda Xbox game um, from Tango Studios, and it's a little six out. It's a great game. Um, so basically, the entire world is set to music that emanates from the main character's chest, who is a, like a cybernetically enhanced person. So it's like in a kind of cyberpunk future, people have like digital replacements for their limbs and stuff. And this guy basically has an iPod coming out of his chest and the entire world um, kind of moves to the rhythm of his music that's playing out of his chest. So his footsteps are to the beat. If there's like some kind of machinery going in the background, it moves to his beat. Everything in the world moves to his beat. Even like the way that the, um, the coins or whatever, like move about on the spot. It's to the beat of the music coming out of this guy's chest. And it's a rhythm action game. So you can play the game as a normal beat-em-up. Enemies come to you and you can just whack them any any way you want. But <laughs> the 3D sound cook. effects from you, Ryan, have been so good today. <laughs> That's the best thing about today. Oh, Charles doesn't matter to me. Oh god. I'm gonna get I'm gonna get towed off by our podcast dad. <laughs> um but yeah, you can play it like any beat-em-up, but you can get like extra combos and like get a better score if your attacks are line up, lining up with the music. So that teach, the game teaches you to attack on the beat and you have your attack when you press X, which is one beat, and your attack when you press Y is two beats. So you have to make sure that you're getting 
to get the best scores and to get the best attacks, you have to make sure that you're lined up with the world. And there's a little companion with you that lights up on the beat. So if you ever lose yourself, you just look at your companion, get the beat back, and then just start attacking again, try and get those combos. It's a really, really cool creative game. And it's, it's one of the best rhythm games I think I've played. Um, oh. Yeah, yeah. How about you, Tyler? Any like rhythm games that you've played that stand out to you? That stand out to me? Um, I was going to say, I will say that first time seeing my friends, I was, I was at a party playing Beat Saber was like really fascinating mm. to me. Um, because when games are like, in terms of my, what, I think so much of like both of y'all, and I, I think Brandon said as he was like going into the, um, going to the video essay, my first experience with a rhythm game is probably um, Guitar Hero. But then when I think about it, probably our all of our first ex- real experience with like um, a rhythm based game is probably Dance Revolution. Dan- mm-hmm. Dance Dance Revolution is probably actually like because I remember playing that like at like like over here at Dave and Buster's as a kid when I was like when I was invited to someone's party or something like that. And I'm like six, seven, eight, maybe younger. I have no. I, we can, someone can maybe fact check maybe later, but like I like I have no idea when Dance Dance Revolution came out. But like that's definitely my first experience with like uh with the game, and I, like I still heck I still be tearing those digital floors up, bro. I, <laughs> I still be tearing those digital floors up with Dance Dance Revolution, and that is a fun rhythm based um rhythm based game. And I even made me think about how even um in the essay he was saying how how Japan typically when it comes to arcades still use a lot of rhythm based gaming, like and not so not just in their indie but like in their current arcade space. And what they're making um, outside of indie stuff, I thought that was interesting because maybe just in terms of aesthetic as well, American ba- American or Western based games will, ha- mm-hmm. will have a priority and what they see as like important or financial. So that's what it all goes, I guess, goes back to the financial dollar. Like, are these games profitable? Profitable, and what can they have an audience for them? So that's that's fa- yeah. that was fascinating to me. That was fascinating to me. Yeah. That that I I agree. I think the most and it's it's hard. It's definitely one of those like you should watch the video. I think that the video gets the point across a lot better than what we're talking about. But that mm. the really interesting aspect of this to me was how um, how and why uh, rhythm games are a staple of indie games, um, but yet like full blown rhythm games are not really like large massive games anymore, but still have the bones of rhythm games kind of like hidden throughout them, right? Like covered up. Yeah, I think that's why the indie space is like infinitely more interesting than the AAA space right now. In the AAA space, oh, yeah. everyone's kind of going for the same thing. Um, but yeah. even with rhythm games, it can be represented in so many different ways. Like I was just thinking now about other games like where there's no music you're setting to, but like the loop of your gameplay is set to a rhythm, similar to like how Dark Souls is. Like there's a game, Tunic, that I was playing last year that... I remember figuring out like, okay, when it's between this enemy's attacks, I can get in two hits before I have to dodge. Mm. So my gameplay just became hit, hit, dodge, hit, hit, dodge. And it just becomes a loop. That's what the gameplay loop is about. So yeah, the rhythm game is kind of revolutionary in terms of like how it kind of sees into every every kind of game design you do nowadays. Um, Dance Dance Revolution came out in 98 in Japan, so I think like early 2000s for America would have been. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. That makes sense when it's like, I'm like thinking of Dave and Buster's, Chuck E. Cheese, all that stuff, like when I'm a kid. So that actually 
yeah. Yeah. And now there's a billion of them. <laughs> now there's like <laughs> a billion of them. Pretty sure they release one every year, just like some kind of update. Do um, another thing about rhythm games that's really cool is how it how they kind of um they're an expression of fandom not just of pop music and different kinds of music but also of video game music like there was the game um released just recently semi recently on the switch it's called taiko drum something if you're familiar like the mascot's like a sushi guy um, oh, I'm gonna hate myself later because I feel like I know what you're talking about. And it's I'm like, Tycho, so I'm, I'm gonna look it up. But it's um, I remember for their DLC packs, obviously like the DLC for these games was like more songs, and I remember the DLC pack was like a Square Enix song pack. So you had songs from like Final Fantasy and Octopath Traveler, and being able to like kind of yeah like express fandom for the. Square Enix RPGs within a um, rhythm game format. There's like a Zelda pack, so the Zelda music in a rhythm game. Like that's so much fun. I think that's so creative. Uh, I'm looking up the name of the thing. Taiko. <laughs> oh, I can't find it. Taiko Switch no. game. I'm going to type. <laughs> well, well, I'll say this to our to our lovely listeners. If you do know, if you find it, put it into like whatever comment section once um or what's the name even hit us up on twitter if you know what uh ryan's talking I about it. i got it i got it under my he found it he found it he found it, <laughs> found it, anyway, he found it. taiko no tatsujin drum and fun for the nintendo switch oh i, 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 I heard of that <laughs> Let's leave that one there. So that was our Rhythm Games Genius by Film Oscar on YouTube. And to finish up, it's the piece that I brought, and it's called The Nintendification of Jazz by Adam Neely. So I found this piece really interesting because it kind of parallels the creation of the jazz standard uh, mm. with the still-in-process creation of the video game standard so a lot of standards jazz musicians play are songs from well before their time which they interpret and have seen interpreted a hundred hundreds of times over the years probably never having heard the original track until like deep into their career as a jazz musician and they just thought oh i'll do extra research on this and find out what that was about so this is now happening with video games where i think they mentioned in the video that now that there's like a a big bank of generations of video game fans where the new generation knows music without having been alive when these games were released initially and probably have never played the games that this, these music are from, but they've probably heard these songs like interpreted in some way in some other games or when they watch a YouTuber and they hear the background music and it's from some game that they've never played, but they're familiar with the music because they watch YouTubers. I've had that a few times with like old Nintendo games, like old Mario games, where I'm playing it. It's like, wait, have I played this game before? Because I recognize this song from somewhere. But then I realized it's just like from an Arlo video or something like that. I just heard it from there. So, um, so that, yeah, they're familiar with interpretations rather than originals. And it's, I think that's just a really clever connection to make and not something I really would have done by myself because my knowledge of like jazz history isn't there. My knowledge of this particular like video game uh, cover band industry isn't really there. And I think like 
the only way you could kind of create a piece like this is if you're part of the community, which Adam is, and that unique perspective he brings, and that like this really entertaining video format, which is a blend of voiceover and interviews with musicians and game clips and performance clips that kind of blend into each other really well. It's really well edited. It kind of communicates his hypothesis for how jazz is moving towards this like video gamey direction um, in a very clean and very understandable way. Cause like when you're in a specific niche community, it's difficult for to explain to people outside of it, why it's exciting or why it's interesting or why it's important. But I think Adam kind of did that very easily and it manages to be very journalistically interesting for off the premise alone, which is rare for a piece to be kind of carried by the concept from the start. Um, like everything feels like cool new information, which I found re- like really, really valuable. Um, so yeah, I'll throw it to you guys. Brandon, what did you find like interesting about this one? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned it too, but the first thing that, that stands out is really just the production value of this video. Um, really solid reporting, interviewing, personal experience, explanations, like organization, editing. Mm-hmm. Um, just put together really, really well. Um, but the second thing, you know, is, is like you said, like paralleling it to the jazz standard and sort of how he talks about how like the mainstream kind of like jazz community hasn't yet really like caught on and adopted, like, you know, taking it seriously um, because it is from video games, but he's really explaining how the culture is slowly adjusting to this thing where, it's not just like, oh, we're playing this video game song because it's a silly little video game song and it's a silly little part of our jazz show, but how it, it's a very serious and very like loved, treasured and respected um, corner of jazz is, is this mm-hmm. adaptation of video game music into jazz music. And how, you know, he talks about how um, you now have jazz musicians who like separate from their love of jazz have now grown up with video games and they're bringing, you know, both of those loves with them as they fill out more and more of the jazz musicians that are out there. Um, and one of the ways that he kind of talks about that is the demand for um, what are they called? Video game jazz, like jam sessions, um, which is like a specific niche of the idea that, you know, jazz musicians have this set of standards um, that any group of, of jazz instrumentationists can get together and play, you know, something from this songbook of jazz standards and everyone knows the song and everyone has their own take on it and can riff on it. And, you know, that's kind of the the format of, of jazz, freeform format of like that jazz jam session um, and how there's now become a need to find spaces to do that same thing with classic video game songs, right? Um, and a lot of these songs, the one that he talks about the most, I think, is um, Bomb on Battlefield from Mario mm-hmm. um, yep. 64. 64. And how, you know, with that game coming out in 97, how you have this new wave of jazz musicians who are adopting these like classic video game songs into jazz. And they're all learning, you know, the same set of songs, right? There's um, that Metal Gear one. There's the Bomb on Battlefield, um, Song of Storms from Zelda. Um, and several others that are mentioned too, but the Sonic one that was that was a banger too. Like that, that, that was, that, was yeah. I forgot that it was cover nice. was really, really good too. It that dude really was singing his ass off. Yeah, yeah. But how you know this set of songs? Like you don't even need to have played 
all of these games, right? Like the younger musicians who are kind of bringing this in and even popularizing things, um, you know, might not have ever played Mario 64. And how down the line from this, you know, more and more of these musicians are going to pick up these standards, like these adaptations more so than they are going to pick them up from the games, right? Like, you know, 20 years from now, someone's going to be playing the Bomb on Battlefield because that is a component of these jam sessions that have become, you know, a subset of jazz culture that's been very important and treasured. They're not going to be playing it because they specifically have a personal memory tied to the game. Um, and that brings, you know, the question that I asked towards the end of my piece, which it was just really fascinating to me to consider with this one as well, is that do video game soundtracks last longer than the games themselves, right? In a medium where um, constant like innovation and technology, constant like upgrading of graphics, you know, there's always the conversation of, of games being left behind as new consoles come out, you know, new consoles come out, um, older games are harder to access, they're harder to play, they don't, sometimes don't seem up to par with newer games, but yet the music from those games, you know, continues to live on and have such a major cultural impact through this like jazzification process um, that's discussed in this, in this uh, video. So it's a really, to me, a really interesting question to think about when it comes to like, what is the actual like lasting cultural impact of a game? Um, and I think we tend to like underestimate, you know, the soundtracks and the ways that they can carry on. Yeah. It's such an interesting thing to think about how these things are like projected into the future. Like the relationship we have to these songs right now is going to be completely different in 20 years um, if the world still exists. Um, but yeah, Tyler, you had a really interesting perspective on this one. So, so, so to, you might have to remind me of my point because I was just, I was, I was good <laughs> But, but to like really get, to, to answer that immediate question that Brandon does pose, does the music, will the music outlast some of these games, right? Ah, it's a tricky question. It's it's. I'm gonna I'm gonna be talking through it as I process it because since you did ask it, so I do think for some games, music will live on. First matter, and it goes. It actually harkens back to an old article I think or video essay that Ryan brought about video game music itself. How certain melodies are going to live on forever because they're such an icon iconic melody. Like everyone knows, like, like da, 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 da. it's it's just yeah. And and you can just and you can live on with that forever. And people can and for in terms of jazz musicians, hip hop artists when it comes to sampling, and that's why I was gonna bring hip hop and jazz together later. I'm glad I remembered. Um, but how those themes and certain songs will live on will live on past. It's like um, this it's the game's expiration date because as Charlie even mentioned in the chat. And how even and it's a big thing going on in terms of media overall now is the preservation of media. These games will be lost. These there's just some of these games that even though we'll know the history from it, they'll just be lost forever. The game, the the companies, they don't care whether you can play this game, like if they do a remaster, right? Like we're lucky that mm -hmm. some Final Fantasy fans are getting remasters of some of their our favorite and original games. That's not gonna happen for a lot of these other games. A lot of these other games, indie or not, once in, 
once the new one comes along to a certain degree, even us, as we get excited for like new games, the seat, uh, let me see, its predecessors will fall into dust, into the sands of time, just because it's, that's unfortunate, but it's, it's music because of the little compilation videos we see on YouTube or whatever streaming platform you have, those will live on. People can now get them, rearrange them like jazz musicians and then reinterpret them and bring new life to them. But most of the music, I'll say, I'll say half of the music will live on and half the other games will live on because we'll get new, we'll get new remasters or we'll get new versions or we'll get sequels. Right. But the music for some of these I- iconic melodies, iconic songs that we have, they will live out. They will outlive their games. Our grand, our grandkids, grandkids will know these songs, just because they'll be they'll be heralded in pop culture forever, right? Mm-hmm. Now, to the point that I was getting to before that, I thought, which, which by the way, I thought this video essay was fantastic. As you guys, have, I'm not going to like harp on it again too much, but like the editing, the professionalism the interviews they brought to the table and the multiple sources like a good journalist would right um which i don't know this person's background but like it felt it felt like they had they had they had maybe a master's maybe doctor in journalism because they know what yeah they knew what to bring to the table they mentioned that they're a musician themselves so yeah i wonder if their background is somehow in journalism because i thought yeah it was very very journalistically accomplished uh especially if that's not their day-to-day yeah yeah which I guess maybe talking to some of my music major friends that you have to write papers on the music theory. So maybe that's true, them true. just knowing um, them just knowing like their stuff. Right. But that's not here or there. But with that being said about this video essay, it made me think about hip hop a lot. Right. And of course there's always been the old saying of how jazz and hip hop have this very close relationship that people always accompanying to because of how they reinterpret music. Um, but when they got into, I think it was like the four, his fourth section into the music, uh, into the um, video essay about impressions. I was like, Oh, there, there it is. Impressions is the jazz version of, of sampling. Jet impressions are all about literally taking an older piece of music, adding your own spin onto it. And even giving information to the audience about that old piece of music. And I was like, ah, I was like, that's sampling. How we literally, how hip hop artists and hip hop in general will literally take something and reformat it and make it new. Whether it's like a melody line, whether it's like Ed Sheeran like being in court because of a guy, <laughs> dang like Marvin Gaye sample, or or just or just a <laughs> line of melody. People take things and and matter of fact, just not in hip hop and jazz, but in music, things are constantly being reinterpreted and not regurgitated. Regurgitation is not is just literally spinning it back out. Something is almost the same, but finding a new way to interpret it, present it, and then give your current audience new information about it. And I think that's what they. And matter of fact, you can argue this whole, that was this really this whole entire video and the point of how Nintendo video game music is being brought to a new audience. And then, and I think they call it the Nintendo Songbook or the mm-hmm. video game Songbook. Yeah. How people are getting these pieces of music new rearrangements and now learning from them and it's forcing the audience to now learn about that older piece of music or a video game in this case so i really think this whole entire this this video this concept the idea that they were trying to get across overall was embracing the old 
and in making sure your audience also knows about the old suit so they can, they can create something new from it in terms of video game music and everything like that, right? But I think, it, once again, I think mm-hmm. it lends itself to a, a larger conversation as well. And that's why I, and that's why I really, really, really dug it. Well, at least one of the reasons anyway. Yeah. yeah. And he also talks about in jazz, like, I think they call it quotations, which is what you're talking about, where, like, you integrate, like, a nod to an older piece of music into, like, a newer composition. Um, and I think it was the, the joint from Elden Ring, right, that that really, wow. like, famous saxophone player um like integrated this melody from elden ring like into an old like jazz classic um and he talks about how that kind of being an avenue for like the potential for classic jazz to like legitimize um the integration of video game music right by treating it in a similar way to like the cultural relevance of these like jazz classics yeah, it's so interesting. I think, and it's it's like it's funny that it comes up every single episode, but it makes sense that it comes up every every single episode. But the only reason we have these particular melodies that are so strong enough to carry through to different genres of music and live longer than the actual game is because of the technical limitations of early consoles. Like, yeah, it yeah. always comes back to that, and it's so fascinating that every single time. But he yeah, said the, in the video, the, actually, too. He said in yeah. the video, too, with one of the composers, yeah. Exactly, with Koji Kondo. He's talking about how he chose, like, a Latin uh, theme for Mario because that's how it felt to play the game. And the melody that he could communicate of what he was able, the track he was able to get on the uh, on the NES cartridge kind of spun out and created everything now like the entire foundation of this whole thing is built on very limited uh palettes that people are able to give and it's so interesting like that that legacy carries on now when video game music starts becoming video game music and it becomes video game standards instead or the form of jazz standard and that's that that's really interesting to me um don't think of anything else for this piece. Do you guys? <laughs> I mean, uh, let, I mean, Brandon, if you want to say something first, I only got one more other thing to say, honestly. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I guess left in my notes, we didn't really talk about is like, and we kind of talked about this before too, but the way music ties to memory um, mm-hmm. is always just an interesting topic because it's also very like not fully understood. Right. Like all we know is like that the most active part of your brain, like when listening to music is the same part of your brain that's like involved in the creation and processing of memory. Right. So there's something very, very human to the way that like certain rhythms will like, you know, your, your brain will physically respond in a way that it like has a, you know, a pattern of remembering the response to that rhythm, like to that melody. Right. Like that kind of thing is like, you know, can put you like put you back in that kind of same state um and so obviously that applies here when we're talking about these how how even like and actually that elden ring one is a good example because it's the 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 core melody is the same but it's buried within a completely different song but yet you always can pick out that core melody and it gives that feeling that that original core melody gave to the entire rest of the song even if it's you know a completely different like interpretation Memories and feelings never really die, do they? When you have a piece of music attached to it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that got me sad for a quick second. I'm like, oh man, music, music lives forever, dude. Even after, even even when you forget it, even even when you forget something, you, the music will will make you remember it always. Um, the heart remember the heart remembers its tune. That's great, man. Um, I guess my last my last final point, I guess to end it on me, jazz, music, video games, these forms of consumptive media and um, auditory listening experiences are so close to home for us as writers, as video, as frequent video game players that I hope that one, as the more we talk about this and the more we learn from these, these, these pieces of music and these creators is that just to, just to have fun. Don't let's not be constri- um, constricted by what's his name, the realism and just play <laughs> and just, and just play, man. This, this has been awesome just like this this video essay may, may have had me remember that dude so yeah thank you ryan for bringing this to, to the table you can thank adam neely the author of that video um yeah. and that'll do it for today's episode so just to round up all the pieces that we have so far it's the intensification of jazz by adam neely our rhythm games genius by phil motter and hotline miami and the rays of techno and ultraviolet video games by Nina Cochran for Pitchfork. So yeah, that was the fourth edition of the video game music uh, specials on Search Source. The Persona 4 Golden, the Diamond and Pearl edition, <laughs> the Twilight Princess, I think it's the fourth, Reedy Zelda. Any other fourths we got before we go? Uh, I think the tech, I think Tekken Tag Team is the fourth uh, Tekken okay. game. So that's, okay. That's what I have that in my head. Okay. Mega Man Battle Network okay. 4. <laughs> Yeah, anything four in the end, I guess. Like Pikmin four, Mario four. Pick chat. Shout out Pikmin four. Can't wait for that shit. Can't wait. Can't wait. Yeah. I can't believe it's next. It's a month. good year. It's a good year. Any? What other games are you guys looking forward to? Because there's also um, uh, Armored Core six. The FromSoft game. Looking forward to. Oh my god. Um. God, I really just I really just saw this one really cool like gameplay video. Um. But okay, if I have like okay, if I have like anyone who's developing a game right now, please make an open world Superman game. I there's wow. no way we have not had so many open world games with Batman, Spider Man, who and way up and the way their dynamics work. There's you have to make an open world Superman game. Like there's 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 a way to do it, right? There has to be a way to do it. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that'd be fun. In terms of what I'm excited for the rest of the year, Spider Man Two obviously looks great. Uh, there's an RPG, an indie RPG coming out on the Switch called Sea of Stars. It's really cool, really cool pixel art. I'm talking really fast because Charlie is like dying over here because of the length of this episode. But <laughs> really care. <laughs> so you can stop. Um, um, obviously, Pikmin Four, and um, as always, fingers crossed, Nintendo announced the next 3D Mario. Just give me that. Give me that 3D Mario. Um, oh, and um, Starfield. Cautiously optimistic about Starfield. I don't yeah. know how it's going to work out, but yeah. Uh, as always, if you are a writer and you aren't uh, a big writer and you want to get your work out there, uh, send it to us and we'll read it and maybe we'll feature it on the podcast if we like it. Um, yeah, I think that's it from us on this episode. Uh, yeah, see you on the next one, guys. Yep, thanks for listening. Thank you.
This episode of In Search of Source featured Ryan Gore, Brandon Hill, and Tyler Jones of the same Sourcecraft Collective. The episode is edited by me, Chai Tyler, of the 5EPN Music for the Show. Fucked up by Barsley. Thanks to Chill Music for the bits of use. This has been a Central Source and Fifth Element Podcast Network production. Thanks to Barsley, Chill Music, Central Source, and Fifth Element. And content company episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening. Hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source.